Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for it being more valuable than the most precious gems and materials we can find. Uh, even as men spend time tunneling into the depths of the earth looking for glittering jewels, what a worthy endeavor that is so much greater it is for us to dive into the depths of your word and look for beautiful, glittering jewels of your beauty and holiness and mercy. Oh, Father, this morning, would you allow us not to be bored by a passage maybe that we've heard many times before, but we'd be hit afresh by the reality that you are a God who speaks and who is faithful to his word and that our joy can abound when we see you act according to it. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. No sin is greater than being boring, and there's nothing worse than doing what other people tell you to do. Those words were from the great philosopher and deep thinker, Paris Hilton. <laughs> now, you may not think much of the source, but I think we can recognize without too much work that that is how many people think of life, isn't it? They want most of all to have a life that has seemed like it is noteworthy, worthy of being celebrated, captured on camera, people to think we are interesting if we're anything. And we certainly don't want anybody telling us not to do something we want to do. Well, I think because of some of those assumptions, the Christian life can seem like such a drag to many. Uh, many people, many of our neighbors, unsafe family members, often think that Christianity is boring. That shouldn't be the case, but uh, it was the case in the life of a guy named Fadi Gobriel. He grew up in a church setting, one with lots of ritual in it. Very quickly, he came to the conclusion that all, everything that was old was cold and boring. He wanted nothing to do with all the forms and the rules. And so he did what many people who grow up in a religious background do. He rebelled. He started living for himself, an exciting life. He pursued a life of partying and drugs. And by his own words, pretty quickly, his life started to spiral out of control. Now, as Christians, we should have great pity for anyone that would go down such a path because we understand that life isn't like that, that the answer to a life that's worth living to avoid a boring life isn't to sin. Now, the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones are absolutely right, that sin is actually the epitome of a bored life. And in fact, true living, or might even say true joy, comes through believing God's word and beholding him act. Uh, the story before us this morning is of two people walking down the journey of life. A, a journey that turns out is one headed toward joy. Mary and Elizabeth. They both will display great faith. They both will see God work in an incredible way right in front of their eyes. And the result, they both will abound with joy. So this morning, I hope you don't come away bored by God's word. Quite the opposite. I hope you come away convinced that believing God's word and beholding God work leads to bountiful joy. We'll see that in this passage in two sections. Really a story and a song. 
But verses, the first section, 39 through 45, we'll see the joy of belief confirmed. The joy of belief confirmed. And then the song, 46 through 55. The joy of beholding proclaimed. The joy of beholding proclaimed. I pray by the time we're done, you are convinced and you're even abounding in joy yourself because you believe God's word and you have seen him act. Let's begin in that first section, 39 through 45, the joy of belief confirmed. Things start off right where they left off. Remember last time Mary had received this incredible word from the Lord through the angel Gabriel. He came to a teenage girl, a nobody from in the middle of nowhere and brought her this incredible news. God was going to send his son that she would bear a baby who would grow to be the very son of God. And Mary believed. And you might think, given her reflective nature, that she might have taken a minute or two to, to turn this over in her mind and figure out what to do. But verse 39, Luke starts us off with Mary urgently acting. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. Mary gets up and goes, and she has to go a long way. Um, she's off to her relative Elizabeth's house. We're just told it's somewhere in Judah, in the countryside. That could be anywhere from uh, uh, about a four to a six-day journey, depending exactly where Elizabeth lived. Mary, and we're not told exactly how she comes to the conclusion this is what she needs to do, but one of the things we'll see in this passage is just saturated with the Holy Spirit's activity. I have to think that Mary felt a special urging from the Lord and was obedient, and that's why she was on the move in haste, obeying quickly. In verse 40, she arrives at her relative Elizabeth's house. She gives her a pretty normal greeting, and I have to think what happens next must have surprised Mary. Because what she receives back is anything but a normal greeting back. In 41 and 42, we see Elizabeth responding. And as we do, there are three things that are way out of the ordinary that clue us in that something special is happening here. Uh, first, we see that Elizabeth, as she hears the greeting, her, the baby within her jumps. Well, Later on, we're told that John the Baptist in the womb recognizes that Jesus is present in the womb of his relative, and he jumps for joy, fulfilling the words of Gabriel that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We, we also see that Elizabeth herself is also filled with the Holy Spirit. Like a, a king or a judge in the Old Testament, she is being given God's empowering presence, which is why what comes next happens Elizabeth prophesies. Uh, you see that in verse 42. She exclaimed with a loud cry. Uh, you could translate that also. She gave a prophetic shout. Uh, that she thundered as if she was speaking from the top of Mount Sinai. She used the same prophetic power that one day her baby John would use when he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God is acting. He is speaking through this woman. And he is bringing his plan, long hidden, finally to pass. Her prophecy itself is amazing also. There's three parts to it. All three of these parts 
show the theme of blessing. Uh, First, she declares uh, Mary blessed in verse 42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now realize at this point, nobody has told Elizabeth, and we're not told that Mary has told anyone else what has happened with Gabriel coming and telling her of the coming of Jesus. She, by the Holy Spirit, revealing to her, she understands the gravity of this moment and declares that heaven is smiling on Mary because she has the great privilege of carrying the Lord Jesus in her womb. Not because she earned it or she had any merit, but because God has been gracious to her. Similarly, she says that she herself, that's the second part of her prophecy, that she herself is blessed. Look at verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She asks a rhetorical question. Why am I allowed to be in this room? I I realize the gravity of what's happening here. Uh, Notice how she realizes that Mary is carrying her Lord. As great as her promised son, who will be the greatest of all prophets, John the Baptist is. He is mere foreshadowing, mere preparation for the baby that is in Mary's womb. Elizabeth understands that she is blessed just to be there. Now, as the, we've been having these two parallel accounts, one of the themes that's coming to the surface is how Jesus is greater than John. And I realize John's life is going to be a bit like a booster rocket. His whole purpose is to get Jesus into the orbit of ministry. And after that, John's done. In this moment, Elizabeth sees who is the greater of the two, and and she realizes she is blessed to even have this audience with King Jesus in the womb. There's a third thing that she says in verse 45. She declares that Mary is blessed for having believed. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth understands that none of this joy that she is experiencing happens unless Mary takes God at his word. None of this happens unless Mary believes the message that was sent to her and acts in obedience. So she tells Mary, your, your belief has been confirmed. You are blessed in your doing. What a great privilege it is to receive words from God and what a great obligation it is to believe and respond in obedience. Uh, What we see in this passage is a great example of our faith, of of two women who received revelation from God and who responded faithfully. In in faith, yes, but also in action. Now, let's not miss uh, a subtext of irony in all this. Because even as God is beginning to unfold his plan, and even as that plan is being played out in these two wombs of these two women, all this is happening in the house of poor priest Zechariah in his cone of silence. Uh, The guy who got the word from the Lord and didn't believe it, he is missing out on this moment of pregnant prophetic power. He's sitting by himself and he has another three months in his remedial lesson in believing God's word left. Now what are we to take from this account of two incredible sisters in the Lord. Well, let me give you two lines of application that I think are especially fitting. Well, first would be, we should endeavor to take God at his word, 
so that we can be joyful when his word is confirmed. You know, God fulfills his word because he's faithful. But God also fulfills his word so we can draw joy from it when we see him be faithful. Now, that's only possible if you put yourself in a position so that God can show that he will fulfill his word. Sometimes you have to go out on a bit of a spiritual limb in order to find the fruit of joy that God has waiting for you. Uh, have you experienced this in your life? There, there's some risky step of faith you have to take, but when you do it, somehow, according to God's word, you, you see God live up to the things he's promised he'll do. Maybe it's stepping out to start an evangelistic conversation with a, a neighbor or a family member. And you trust that God tells you that the gospel of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation. And you're a bit out there, out on the limb for Jesus in that moment. And when God comes through, what joy does that produce? Uh, maybe it's with your finances. You had a, a moment where you know you need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. And it's a bit of a stretch to do the thing that God has in front of you with your limited resources. And yet, when you do it and God provides, doesn't it just produce bountiful joy in your heart? I had a phone call recently with a guy I mentored years ago. He long had a desire to be able to, to do pastoral ministry. And he wanted to go to seminary for preparation. Really good desires. But early on, it became obvious that his road toward that was going to be a long one. Uh, he, uh, the circumstances in his life meant that he needed to support his family and love his wife by working a certain type of job. And that was a difficult thing for him. And he, he asked me what I thought. And I thought, told, brother, I think God's word is clear. Your calling's first in the, in the home. And to love sacrificially and to do that joyfully. And yes, uh, your good ambition to serve the Lord in ministry, maybe one day he'll add that to you. Well, he accepted that with much prayer and some difficulty. And years later, I got a phone call from him. And he was just overflowing with joy. God had used that season to grow his wife, to grow his faith to grow his ability to minister. And, and now God had opened the way for him to go to seminary toward ministry. And he was more ready and joyful than he ever would have been without the weight. Brothers and sisters, you need to sometimes take a bold step of faith to go out on that spiritual limb to find the sort of joy that will bring that abundant fruit into your life. Second application. Don't delay in responding to God's word. Uh, we're told that Mary acted urgently when it was clear to her what God would have her do. She's commendable in that. So quickly, our hearts look for excuses to put off obedience, or we find things that seem like they're more important and forget about it altogether. Most often, obeying as quickly as we can is the right answer. Remember one dear brother or in the middle of a service much like this one, there was a, an application from God's word related to reconciling broken relationships in the body of Christ. And he felt cut to, to his heart that he needed to make this right with a person sitting in this church at that very moment. So he got up and did it. I heard about it from both sides afterward. 
It was an incredible moment of shared joy. Now, we don't know God's plan perfectly. And there are times where, for providential reasons, we are unable to do something that God puts in front of us. And those times we trust the Lord. But more often than not, if we are able, we should obey immediately. Maybe you need to send a text message as soon as the church service is over. Or make a phone call. Or write a check. Uh, maybe there's some neighbor that you need to invite over for Thanksgiving dinner that the Lord laid on your heart. While you feel that direction, while the word of the Lord is clear in your heart and mind, act on it. The enemy would love nothing more than for you to wait so he can snatch away that implanted word. Keep you from the joy that would come if you did. Well, what we see from this wonderful example of these two women is how we should take God at his word. How we should do so urgently and expectantly. And what we do, well, there will be a, a harvest of bountiful joy in our hearts. But, but there's a second leg to this journey. Because not only are we to experience this joy, we are to share it. And that's what the song in this passage brings. Our second point, the joy of Beholding proclaimed in verses 46 through 55. C.S. Lewis famously said that delight is incomplete until it's shared. Uh, you know that intuitively. You go to a movie that you really love. When you get out from it, you're gossiping about it to other people. You, Man, you got to see this movie. It's incredible. Someone has a baby or you have a baby and you're enthralled by how cute and cuddly and pinchable those cheeks are. And you just can't help but articulating that, right? Oh, you have the most beautiful baby in the world. That is part of your enjoyment, isn't it? So too there is when we see God act according to his word. When we see him live up to his promises. There is a joy that can only be found when we run that final leg of the course to share it with others. Uh, there was a woman in the Old Testament that did this by the name of Hannah. Back in 1 Samuel, she was in a very familiar sounding position. She was barren. She was living in a state of shame because she could not have children. She had a, a rival that kept on reminding her of how uh, humble her estate was. But that's why it was so joyful when the Lord sent a word to her through the priest Eli telling her she would have a son. And she did. A great son indeed, a, a son that would grow to be the prophet Samuel. When he was old enough to be dedicated to serving the Lord in the temple, Hannah knew that God's word to her had come true. He had kept his promise and, and her heart overflowed with joy. And so what did she do? She shared it by singing a song. Hannah's song is a beautiful section of the scripture. If you have time this afternoon, I highly encourage you to look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1 and 2. Look, look at Hannah's, the whole story about her and her song. Uh, she starts off that song with this line. My heart exults in the Lord. My heart exults in the Lord. Now, I can't help but wondering, along with many commentators, if, if Mary as she was on that four-plus-day journey, if even though she was likely illiterate, if she might have memorized Hannah's song, as, along with many other sections of Scripture, and had been thinking about the parallels to her life, to Hannah's life, if she might have been singing a song of joy in her heart, and now, now that song comes out 
to spread the joy around and proclaim it to others. The first line to that song sounds a lot like Hannah's song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, this section, verses 46 through 55, is often called the Magnificat. comes from that first line there, that word magnifies the Lord. It, it means to tell of the greatness of God, to proclaim it and share that joyful experience. Now, this song rightfully, I think has been said, would fit perfectly well in the book of Psalms. It has the shape of what we call a psalm of thanksgiving. Mary first praises God, verses, first two lines, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's a, a song of giving thanks. And then after that come reasons for it. Three reasons. All three reasons relating to God's mercy to specific groups of people. Uh, first, in 48 through 49, she recounts God's mercy to her, to Mary. She rejoices, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary realizes what God has done for her has been all grace it is his mercy that has seen her in the, the midst of her shame, being childless, and has allowed her not only the joy of having a child, but of having the greatest of all children, the very Son of God. She recognizes this isn't her own doing. This is God's mighty work. This is God's plan unfolding in the world, and yes, in her womb. Mary knows that she has received great grace from the Lord, and she praises him for it. Uh, second, she praises him for his mercy to all who fear him. It's a much broader category. Anyone who humbles themselves before the Lord. That's in verses 50 through 53. Verse 50 reads, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This is a, a timeless truth. God shows mercy to those who humble themselves before him. To those who say, God, you are God, I am not. Therefore, what you say goes, and what I say, well, that can come and go. Only the heart that is willing to bow before the sovereign authority of God will find him to be the merciful and kind and gracious God that Mary knows. That is a timeless truth. Now, what comes next in 51 through 53 is a little bit of a difficult of an interpretive knot. Uh, Mary describes a series of things in the past tense, but the things she describes sound as if they're things that are actually going to happen in the future that her child, Jesus, will grow up to accomplish. Uh, I think the best way to understand this is this is an example of something called the predictive aorist, which is just a way of saying it's something in the future that is so sure to happen that you could talk about it like it already happened. So she thinks these things are so uh, unbelievably likely to happen that she talks about them in the past tense like they already happened. Uh, what are those things? Two things. Humbling the powerful and empowering the humble. Uh, she talks about humbling the powerful once in each of the lines. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts in 51. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones in 52. 
he and the rich he has sent away empty in 53. All the supposed strength and wisdom and power of the world, God is in the business of upending expectations, tearing down the mighty men and the philosophers and, and showing that their supposed might is foolish. Now, of course, God does that in intermediate ways. But the way which that is done most fully will, is yet to come in the second coming of Jesus. When he shows he is the true king of kings and overthrows all of God's enemies. And it's shown all of the supposed might and wisdom of the powerful people in this world was all just foolish fantasy. And the reality of the one who is king over all. The, the flip side of that coin is God empowering the humble. Say that's in those same verses, you'll see it. He has exalted those of humble estate in 52. He has filled the hungry with good things in 53. All of this is him showing the strength of his arm. Uh, God loves to take those that the world thinks nothing of and to exalt them, to, to lift them up to a place of prestige and, and great blessing. Now, of course, this has happened in the preaching of the gospel. Doesn't God so often show his power by saving people that the world thinks nothing of? People the world considers foolish and unworthy through the belief in the good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected. We see God exalting, lifting up those people to become beloved sons and daughters, princes and princesses of the king. Mary looks, looks down the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, looks down the corridors of time and sees this glorious future that's coming. On the day when Lord, the Lord Jesus comes and not only defeats his enemies, but ushers in an unending reign and invites God's people to come and reign with him. God will on that day humble the powerful and empower the humble. Third, we see his mercy toward his covenant people in verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary was likely, like most of the Jews in her day, expecting a political military salvation from the Lord. They thought that they were in need of God's mercy, and that that mercy would come when God's justice came upon their enemies, namely the Romans who had stood against them and oppressed them for what seemed like so long. They were expecting the Messiah to come and lead an army and wield a sword and to put God's people back on top. It likely would have been a great shock to her, as it is to so many in Luke's gospel as it unfolds, that Jesus is going to be a very different sort of king. Oh, he certainly will be the example, uh, uh, the personification of God's mercy towards his people. And he will, in fact, fulfill all of God's promises to his people. But he'll do that by dying on a cross, by making atonement for sins, by giving up his very life, and by rising from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit to prove once and for all that all the promises of God are true and yes, in him, in Christ Jesus. Uh, Mary likely didn't understand that reality. 
So she probably would not be able to foresee that 2,000 years later, there would be a people gathered together that are all inheritors of Abraham's promises, all inheritors of the covenants that were passed down from generation to generation in a new and better covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, does that fill your heart with great joy to realize that that wonderful future that Mary got a glimpse of through the Holy Spirit, in some sense, you are living in that reality, and a reality is just going to keep getting better until the second coming of Christ and his eternal reign on a remade earth. What a joy. Well, the, this wonderful song ends, and the narrative leaves us with a, a new, new state. Mary remains there for about three months, and then she returns home. Right at about the time for John the Baptist to enter the world, it's time for Mary to go home and wait for her time for the birth of her son to come. Now, in this great story, we are given a word for our own abundant thanksgiving and joyful response to when we see God act in our lives. I was reminded this week that there's a special word here for those of you uh, in the body of Christ with artistic gifts. Now, I am so thankful for the diversity in the body of Christ, uh, especially because that means there are going to be some people that are artistically gifted. For those of us that are artistically ignorant, like myself, um, it's wonderful that people write songs and poems and, and even do uh, wonderful sculptures and paint paintings all to the glory of God. Now, realize that inspired by the Holy Spirit as this was, this is an act of using art, songwriting, for the sake of glorifying God. And I wonder if there may be someone among us who has a poem or a song or a painting or some other form of art that the Lord might have you use to proclaim the great joy of you seeing God's word fulfilled right in front of your eyes. I want you to ask yourself, what promises in God's word have you seen fulfilled? What mighty works have you seen him do in your life that you could capture the joy in a work of art? Maybe the Lord would have that done among us. There was a, a dear sister in the Lord that I never got the pleasure of meeting. She had great artistic gifts, and uh, she used them to make these really tall banners for sermon series for the previous church I served in. Uh, so each series that was coming up, she would read that book and she would mine into the great truths of God's word and she would use that inspiration to make this 20-foot tall banner. I don't know how big they were. And it would capture the beautiful themes in God's word, the beautiful truths in, in a fresh way. And I never met that sister. But I walked the halls of that church and I shared in her joy as I, even artistically ignorant as I am, as my heart was stirred by her capturing God's word in action. Uh, maybe God would have you do something like that. If so, I hope you'll be quick to obey. I think there's also a word here for us, more directly for all of us, to be quick to tell our testimonies of God fulfilling his word in our lives. That when our hearts are filled with joy because we know God did something, that, that we would finish the delight. We would run that last course in the journey of joy and share it with others. 
Uh, again, I would love for you to come tonight and use that open mic time. Maybe the Lord is laying a specific thing on your heart right now. And he wants you to come and be brave enough to talk about it. And in doing so, you will allow your joy to be abundant and to be bountiful. You'll also be helping others to be joyful as well. Will we be a people that are quick to share the stories of what God has done and to give him all the glory? Well, this account from these two incredible women of the faith, I, I hope it has stirred your heart to believe God's word, to have joy in seeing him fulfill his word and to proclaim it so that joy can be shared. You know, it's not a boring life to live for Christ. It's the most joyful, worthwhile thing you could ever do. That man I told you about at the beginning of the sermon, Fadi uh, Gobriel, he lived his life of partying and chasing after all the pleasure of this world, thinking he was done with that, all that old, boring, cold religion, only to find that his sin was all, not all that satisfying. But thankfully, God wasn't done with this guy who ran. Through some circumstances, his parents and then his brother ended up attending a gospel-preaching Baptist church. They invited him to come with them to a church conference around Thanksgiving. He said he didn't want to go. He wasn't interested in God, but he wanted to get them off his back, so he went. And as the Lord would have it, God had great joy waiting for this man who would soon be a brother in the Lord for each and every one of us. He gave his life to Christ, and he declared on that day, at the moment when I finally saw and treasured Christ, I found the, the most glorious day of all. The, that day changed my life forever, and my joy was more than doubled. Uh, he wrote uh, his testimony down in a Christianity Today article. You can look it up if you'd like. And he is living proof that God is still in the business of doing mighty acts according to his word so that our joy might abound. Brothers and sisters, now we'll have a chance to remind ourselves of how that abundant joy is possible by coming to the Lord's table. The kind gift of our Lord Jesus to remind us regularly as we come together of his body broken and his blood shed so that we could be forgiven. And yes, so that our joy could abound. Let's pr pray as we prepare our hearts to take of the Lord's table.